Our scripture reading today comes from the book of Matthew. We're going to read beginning in Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 8. And we're going to begin uh, in verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon the other that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, so that see that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginnings of birth pangs. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin? Father, we come before you today delighted for this passage to see the truths that we have in here. Father, this is prophetic words from you about the future, which is surely to come. And so, Father, help us to keep our eyes on Christ, not the things of this world. Help the beat of our heart to be, give me Jesus. And so, Father, we ask that by your grace and your power that we would do just that. Father, help us now in this text. I ask for clarity of communication, clarity in the preaching of the word, but also in the hearing of the word. And so, Father, we just ask that What would be said today is true of you and the words that you've revealed to us. Help us now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When it comes to cause and effect, humanity are experts at getting it wrong. We easily and quickly confuse correlation with causation. We are then, you could say, experts at misreading the signs. For example, one of the signs people often look to has to do with pregnancy and whether or not the baby will be a boy or a girl. And so it is said that if the woman is carrying the baby high, it will be what? A girl and low, a boy. And by golly, you know what? That's actually right. 50% of the time. It's remarkable. According to Dr. Adina Holland Keller, she said this, if a woman looks like she's carrying high or low, it is based on the size and the position of the baby and the shape of her pelvis. And so carrying high or low, sorry if I'm bursting anyone's bubble here, is not a true sign of things to come. Another sign people often look for as an indicator of future things though we probably do it lightheartedly and not all too seriously, but there are still some, uh, has to do with a cookie. And if that's a cookie, I got to say I'm George Washington because that is not a cookie. I don't care what they call it. But nevertheless, fortune cookie remains its name. And so it goes that picking one of these things at random can somehow reveal your future. And yet, not only are the prophecies found within these disgusting little things so vague and meaningless 
The cookies themselves and the small sheets of prophetic wisdom within them offer zero indication of your future. And this really shouldn't be controversial. I don't think I need to prove this, but here's the thing. Cookies don't know the future, church, all right? Like, let's just be, let's just be upfront about this. They don't know the future, all right? So whatever paper you get from said cookie is about as worthwhile as your horoscope or your zodiac sign, for none of these are true signs of things to come. One more here. Another sign that people look to as in being an indicator of things to come is an animal called Marmota Monax. Anybody know what Marmota Monax is? Wow, you guys are smart. Yes, the common folk refer to Marmota Monax as the groundhog or the woodchuck. So you could have said either there. And this, he's pretty cute. This cute little rodent, so they say, can tell you how long winter is going to last. Okay, and the way this works is every February 2nd, since, 19, since 1887, this has been going on for a while now, the good people of Puxatawney, Pennsylvania, gather in order to see whether or not the groundhog named Puxatawney Phil will or will not see his own shadow. For as we know, if he sees his shadow, we get six more weeks of winter. And if he doesn't, amen, springs right around the corner. However, Phil gets things wrong way more than he gets right. For they have studied this to see that he's only right 39% of the time, which is actually lower than total random chance. Which all goes to show that a groundhog seen or not seen its shadow, is not a true sign of things to come. When it comes to getting signs of the future wrong, I think we can all agree that there's one area that matters the most when it comes to this, and it's the area of biblical prophecy. More specifically, Christ's second coming. And yet, when it comes to understanding the signs of biblical prophecy in Christ's second coming, we're not doing that much better collectively as a church than Puxatani Phyllis. Like, we get this wrong a lot, sadly. Um, and partly is because we're surrounded by so many voices pointing us, without study, without much thought, to signs that indicate nothing at all to do with Christ's second coming. Right? We know this. There's so many people who are saying, oh, this happened, this, I had this vision, this dream, he's coming back next Thursday, all these things. History's full of this, and they get it wrong all the time. And yet, here's the fact. We know Christ surely is coming, and he has given us signs that indicate his return. Now, why has he done that? He's done that, as the old saying goes, not to scare us, but to prepare us. Okay? And that is absolutely true. Biblical prophecy is not given to terrify us. It's given to prepare us for things to come. And another thing about this, if we read, you know, well, all over the New Testament, but First and Second Thessalonians especially, it's a hope that we are given. This is something we are to hope in, which is why Christians refer to Christ's coming as our blessed hope. And so because biblical prophecy is given to prepare us, not to scare us, it's given to encourage us, we need to labor at understanding it. And make no mistake, if you're going to understand it, you are going to have to labor at it. You can't just read the book of Revelation and be like, I got it all figured out. And if you think you do, you don't. You really don't. 
If we don't understand biblical prophecy, not only are we going to have to ignore upwards of 30 to 40% of our Bibles. Do you realize that 30 to 40% of our Bible has to do with prophecy? Not only that, but we will be easily duped then by the false signs that surround us because there's so many of them. Which brings us to a passage that I have been greatly looking forward to these past two and a half years. Jacob, would you back up to the sermon slide? I keep seeing the groundhog and it's distracting me. Thank you. He's so cute. This brings us to our passage this morning, which is Matthew chapters 24 and 25. We're obviously not taking both chapters in one go. That would be madness. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 24. I'll give you a minute to turn there. You're going to definitely want to follow along today. Now, before we dive into this text, we're going to have two rules of engagement, and you're going to agree to them whether you want to or not. Okay? These are the rules of engagement for studying, preaching, teaching through prophecy, okay? It's not an option here. First off, rule number one, when it comes to understanding biblical prophecy, this is a family discussion, okay? This is a family discussion, right? We're not enemies, okay? Now, there are some groups that when it comes to biblical prophecy, they do deny the gospel. That's a whole different category. But generally speaking, When it comes to biblical prophecy, this is a family discussion, which means we do not disown each other over family matters, right? That's pretty straightforward. It's not a test for Christian fellowship. It's just not. Now, some of this matters for how you're going to do church, the perspective you're going to preach from, but we can still shake hands and hug and love each other even if we disagree on this. It's not a test for Christian fellowship. And if you make it one, you are biblically guilty of being divisive. So don't do that. Now, good Christians differ on this, so we need to approach this with a matter of great charity. All right? So let's be charitable in this. And we need to recognize that we aren't going to see things eye to eye until the day when Christ returns before the tribulation to rapture us. Do you see the wink in my statement there? Think about it. All right. (laughs) I'm being facetious here, joking. All right, now... If you've been here at all for our study through the book of Matthew, you know the perspective that I teach from, right? Which is premillennialism, all right? Prima what? Premillennialism, which simply means that the prophecies concerning Christ's coming are to be understood literally. Or we could say, and we probably should say, which is more clear, in a normative way, okay? If I tell you to meet me next Thursday for coffee at 5 p.m., I don't mean 4 billion years from now at... 5 p.m. in another time zone. I, I don't, okay? And that's how we approach the Bible. It's a normative. It's a literal way. It's reading this and saying, what did the author want me to understand? Okay? That's how we approach prophecy. Now, there will be symbols in there, right? Revelation is full of symbols. And often, Revelation self-describes its symbols, right? What are the seven lampstands? A little louder. There you go. It tells us what a lot of these symbols are. Sometimes it doesn't, but most of the time, a lot of the time, it actually does. Now, about this literal, literal or normative way of approaching the Bible, when the Bible says that the Messiah will be born of a virgin, we conclude that the Messiah was born literally of a virgin. And was he, church? Yes, he was. And so if you read your New Testament, you will see that that was the case. Now, there's numerous prophecies here. And so 
we see when we look at these, I don't know if that's too big or, or too small, to, sorry, it would be too big, too small to see, um, but there's literally hundreds of these. Born in Bethlehem, preceded by a messenger, Malachi 3.1, right? John the Baptist, rejected by his people, betrayed by a close friend. His side would be pierced. He would be crucified. He would die and rise again. And so when we see that the prophecies concerning Christ's first coming were fulfilled literally, then, and I don't think this is a leap here, church, to say that when it comes to the prophecies of his second coming, they will also be fulfilled literally, right? Because in the Old Testament, a lot of the prophecies concerning the first coming and the second coming, they're just boom, smashed together right by each other. As we're going to see in Daniel 9, the same things going on in Daniel 9. Some of them happen here. Some of them are going to happen thousands of years later, okay? But it's a literal fulfillment, right? So that's the lens by which we are going to approach this text. Now, not all Christians believe that, but I say this without trying to be mean. That's their problem, not mine, not yours, okay? Other people's interpretive problems of the Bible doesn't mean we need to you know, be charitable to the point of adopting their views, okay? We can have a discussion on this. We can debate it. We can argue it. That's a good family thing to do. So we'll leave that for them to work it out on their own. I'm not going to try to defend premillennialism other than what I've said so far. And if you've been here throughout the book of Matthew, I actually don't think it needs much defense. Now, we don't disown them. It's a family discussion. But rule number two is it's not arrogant to make truth claims. It's not arrogant to make truth claims, okay? Think about this. Right now, we live in a day and age where the only truth is there is no truth. We live in a day and age where truth is in the eye of the beholder, and all truth claims are suspect at best and flat-out arrogant at worst. And that is actually hellish nonsense. It's absolutely hellish nonsense. It's, it's the approach Pilate had when he said, what is truth? Like, really? You can claim truth? Come on. That's so arrogant. Truth is in the eye of the beholder is only true when the beholder is God. And God has revealed truth to us, has he not? Deuteronomy 20, 29, 29, 29. The secret things belong to God and the things revealed belong to who? us and our children forever. We have a responsibility to understand what God has revealed. And if we ignore that responsibility because we want to seem, you know, pious or whatever, that's actually being irresponsible. So yes, good people differ. And often in response to this, people will say, good people differ. Who are you to claim that you're right and everybody else is wrong? Huh? Mr. Arrogant. Anybody ever heard that kind of language before when it comes to views of the Bible or anything else? all the time. And to answer that question, I'll simply say, who am I? I'm nobody. I'm just a man. And if this was just me saying this, you could and should completely ignore it. But let's see what God says about biblical prophecy. Revelation 1.3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, and what? Who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Again, at the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation 1.3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. If we're going to receive the blessing, it doesn't come from reading without comprehension. Okay, that's like mystical stuff. That's not how it works. Okay, it's not, it's not hocus pocus, just, oh, we keep reading it, we're gonna get a blessing. No, 
It's not even from reading, not from hearing. It's from keeping, keeping the words of this prophecy. And if we're going to keep the words of the prophecy we find, in, the prophecies we find in the Bible, we're going to have to understand them. That's how we get the blessing. And so blessed is the one who understands these things and then keeps them through their understanding, we could say. Now, again, rule one, family discussion. So remain humble, remain charitable. Rule two, it's not arrogant to make truth claims. So if you're going to argue, oh, you made a truth claim, that's arrogant. Well, you just made a truth claim about truth claims. And so eh, pot kettle, right? Like, you see what I'm saying? We're all making truth claims. We have to fight it out in a family way. Now, nod your head in response to you if you're tracking with me so far. Yes, no, good. All right. Okay, two rows of engagement down. Let's move. In our passage this morning, Jesus is addressing false signs of his second coming. All right? He's telling his disciples, when you see these things, don't be alarmed because they're not signs of my coming. And what are those three signs? Here they are. False signs of Christ's coming include Israel, Antichrist, and disaster. Look at verse 37, back in Matthew 23, if you would turn a page back. Maybe you don't have to turn a page, but look back at Matthew 23. Verse 37, please. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And yet you were not willing. See, your house has left you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away. And when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, then he answered them, you see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So you see their questions there at the end? There's two questions. What are they? What is the sign of your coming and what is the sign of the end of the age, right? They're hearing what Jesus says about the temple and how it's going to be destroyed. And they're like, okay, this, sound, this sounds like world ending. I mean, the temple was massive, okay? This is a huge thing. And so that's what's driving their question here. Now, just as a reminder, the gospel, is, the gospel of Matthew is written primarily to Hebrew Christians. It's making the case that Jesus is the, the Messiah, and so the Jewish people should trust in him. They should accept him. But did the Jewish people accept and trust in him? No, they didn't. They flat out rejected him. And as we'll see in the coming maybe months, I'm not sure yet, but uh, they will reject and then go on to crucify him. And Jesus realizes this and this rejection. And that's where in Matthew 23, we looked at all of the woes that he pronounced upon the religious leaders and thus then the nation of Israel. Now, at the end of Matthew chapter 23, we see Jesus's prophecy that what is coming in verse 38. Desolation, right? He says, desolation is coming upon you after he pronounces the woes, all right? Then in chapter 24, verses one and two, Jesus tells them about the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the Jewish temple. And the way this, what this is called here is the Olivet Discourse, okay? This is the Olivet Discourse. 
After putting the religious leaders on blast, Jesus leaves the temple area with his disciples for the last time. On the way then, the disciples start pointing out. They say, wow, look at the temple grounds. This is, this is remarkable, isn't it, Jesus? And he's like, yeah. Well, I got bad news for you, boys, because all of these stones, every last one of them will be thrown down. You will not find one left upon the other. It's total destruction. And so this is... Christ showing that, yes, the people have rejected me, but now I'm rejecting them. I'm rejecting them. Now, remember how we saw how he came and he inspected the temple. He saw the corruption of the temple. And what did he do? Did he get his whip and go to work? No, he went home and slept first. (laughs) Then he came back in the morning with the whip and expressed some righteous indignation, fulfilling the prophecy of having zeal for God's temple. And this was all foreshadowed, as we saw, with the fruitless fig tree. And so Jesus completely rejects them. He rejects their religion. He pronounces severe judgment upon them for their their hypocrisy, for their rejection of God. And so the complete destruction of the temple was an indicator of that. And it was a destruction that would be so severe that one stone would not be left upon the other. Now, why is that? You ever thought about that before? Why would the Romans, who were led by Titus, go to such extremes? Why would they do that? That seems like unnecessary. Like, who likes to lift heavy stones for fun? Like, that seems like a lot of work. Remember, again, these stones were massive. They were about 10 to 12 feet in length, and they weighed several tons. They were absolutely ginormous. And in fact, if you take a tour of Jerusalem today, They will speculate to you how they might have made these stones and moved them and set them all up because we still don't know. We still aren't aware of how they had the technology to do something like this. Now think about this. Why then would they go through all that effort? It seems like maybe Jesus is being hyperbolic here, doesn't it? Like, oh yeah, okay, well, it's going to be bad, but you know, there might be some stones left on top of each other. No, all of them were literally pulled from one another. The historian Josephus gives us an explanation into this, and he talks about how when they sacked Jerusalem and the temple finally in 70 AD, they set fire to the temple, all right? And the fire was so hot, and now remember, this temple was full of gold, lots of gold in this temple, and it was so hot that it melted the gold of the temple, and so what happened then was all the gold, as it melts, seeps down in between the cracks between these massive, huge stones, right? And then you can't get it very easily unless you pry the stones apart, throw them down upon one another, and then collect said gold, which is how Jesus' prophecy came literally true. It's actually kind of interesting and funny because Josephus realizes just how like brutish this was. And so he's trying to like make the Roman Caesar Titus look good. And he's like, oh, Titus tried to stop him. And, you know, the the soldiers were just having, they just got in a frenzy. And they just, you know, before they knew it, the whole thing was just destroyed. It's like, yeah, right. They wanted the gold. Now, remember this temple, when was this thing started? It was started by Herod the Great in 20 BC. All right. And it was finished finally in 64 AD. And so if it was destroyed in 70 AD, that's only six years. I'm pretty sure my math is right. I can do this one. It's only a six-year time period between the temple finally being completed and its total destruction. And so here is Jesus in roughly 30 AD prophesying about this on the Mount of Olives in his Olivet Discourse. And it was literally fulfilled just 40 years later. 
Yeah, that's right. That's 70. All right. Now, even though, this is another interesting thing. Now, even though the historical evidence, the vast majority of historical evidence points to the Gospels being written well before 70 AD, it's kind of, it'd be funny if it wasn't so sad, but modern scholars, what they'll do is they'll come along and they'll look at this and they'll say, you know what? Mm -mm. Nah, these have to be written later. And you know why? Because there aren't miracles. To know the future, right? That, that's a miraculous thing to be able to predict down to that fine detail the future. So we know that doesn't happen because we know there's no God. And if there is, he doesn't do miracles, right? So therefore, the gospels must be written after this. That is what is called special pleading, right? You have an assumption that drives your conclusion and the evidence does not matter. You are going to make the evidence fit your conclusion, all right? Now that's called bias, So with that said, back to Jesus' prophecy here about the temple being destroyed, which sets up his Olivet Discourse, all right? In Matthew 24, verse 3, the disciples hear this, and in their shock, they say, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Now, the Olivet Discourse appears in three of the Gospels. It appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and all of them kind of shed their own unique light on Jesus's teaching here about the end of the age. But they all start with the disciples' question, asking Jesus about his coming to rule and reign as the Messianic king. And we don't know how much they knew about this at the time, but they were starting to pick up on the fact that something was going to delay that. They weren't sure how long, but the way Jesus had been talking and teaching about the Son of Man must die, like, This didn't seem like a king coming to assume the throne. So whatever they understood, we're not fully sure of here, but they clearly did not have a full explanation of what this included. I don't think any of them would ever suspect that there was going to be, at minimum, a roughly 2,000-year gap before Christ would assume the throne. Now, to understand this passage, we really need to go back to Daniel chapter 9 once again. And we did this early on in our study of Matthew, but we need to do it again because we're prone to forget, and it's just super helpful. Okay, so let's read this. Daniel chapter 9, we're going to read verses 24 through 27. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Okay, this is in response to Daniel's prayer. He prays to God and asks God to be merciful, not for their namesake, but for his own. And this is the response he gets in this vision. Okay, so verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the world to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after, there we go, and after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end, there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And this is very Matthew 24 language here, right? Wars, desolations, decreed. Keep going, verse 27. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wings of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decree end is poured out on the desolator. Now, 
verse 27 on, we're going to get to that in the coming weeks as we continue through Matthew 24, but the first verses there have a lot to do with what we're looking at in Matthew chapter 24 here. I mean, even the language is so similar, right? Now, early in our study throughout Matthew's gospel, we looked at this passage, which is Daniel's 70 weeks. And we saw how these weeks, or if your, your translation and your, your Bible might translate this to say these 77s. Anybody have that in their Bible? 77s instead of 70 weeks? Okay, that is, a, that is a, probably a better translation, actually, because that's literally what it is. It's seven seventies or 77s, okay? Seven seventies of what? We know what that means in order to understand this, don't we? Of course we do. Now, everybody do hardcore focus mode here, all right? Put on your thinking caps because I'm going to have to get a little bit technical, but the payoff is worth it, all right? So focus with me, if you would, for the next few minutes really hard. All right. The seven period of sevens are very simple to figure out if we know the time frame that it's referring to, and we do. Now, Daniel tells us in verse 25, what does he say here? He tells us the start of this period. Know therefore and understand that, here's the start, from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, okay, that's the start. We know when that happened. The Bible tells us, it's very clear when this occurred, okay? Then, where was I at? To, here we go, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moats, but in a troubled time. All right, so we got the start. What's the start here? It's the building of the temple. It's the, it's the decree to go out to have this thing rebuilt. And we know that that happened. We just talked about that, right? How the decree went out. You can read your Old Testament for this, but I'm keeping this really short here. Let's look at verse 26 then. After 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. Now, before I continue, I'm going to impose something onto this passage, an assumption, a bias, if you will. So I want to be absolutely clear about that. But I think it's a bias that we all probably agree on. Hopefully we do. And the bias that I'm imposing is my belief that Jesus is the Messiah. Okay? We all good with that one? Jesus is the Messiah? Okay, if not, I'm not sure if you put in the wrong address today, but... That's the bias, okay? Jesus is the Messiah, and therefore he is the anointed one who was cut off from the land of the living as the prophet Isaiah spoke of. And that happened roughly in 32 AD. So if you do some math here, not with, this threw me off last time, big time, because I was calculating all this with, the, with our calendar, which is 365 days. And the Jewish people use the lunar calendar, which was 360 days. Like we have a leap year, they have a leap month, okay? So you think we got problems, but... The point is, like, if you use the wrong calendar, it's not going to make any sense. And that's why I'm like, the math don't work here. Like, I'm bad at math, but even I know this doesn't work. Well, that's why. The lunar calendar has 360 days. So if we take the lunar calendar, everyone still with me? All right. We find that the 70 periods of seven are 70 periods of seven years. Okay? This is not controversial stuff. Theologians, as far as I know, pretty much all agree on this. Which shows us that Daniel's prophecy comes out to 
173,880 days or 476 years. Now, take 476 years, take the days here, divide this by seven, and it comes out to exactly 69 years between the time of the decree to build the temple and Christ's death on the cross. And oh, snap, the Bible's true. You see that? Like, that's ridiculous that that is in our Bibles and it's accurate. Like, that's down to the day that this is right. The, the prophetic dream of Daniel came true. This should give you goosebumps and make the hair stand up. This is amazing stuff. Exactly what Daniel's prophecy said what happened, happened. And so reading the rest of Daniel chapter nine, we find what? Hey, there's 69 weeks and there's one week left that Daniel talked about, which is coming after the time period of the building, the decree to build the temple and the anointed one being cut off. We got a week left, which is seven years, right? Which brings us to the literal interpretation of there being a seven year tribulation that we find described in great detail in the Old Testament, and in the New, especially the book of Revelation. This is called Jacob's trouble, okay? It's the, it's the tribulation that will happen upon earth, okay? And this is the context, church, of the all of it discourse that we find in Matthew 24 and 25, okay? Does this make sense? Because this is some pretty awesome stuff. It's remarkable, okay? Now, I wish I had time for all this, but I don't, all right? So, Take your phones, write it down, take a picture, whatever you want to do, there's your homework. Read Zechariah 14, read Revelation chapter 6, 8, 9, 16, Isaiah 13, read the whole Daniel chapter 9, read the whole book of Daniel, actually, that's even better. But, and then when you're done, go read the book of Revelation. Uh, and then if you want to really have bonus bonuses, extra bonus work, read First and Second Thessalonians. The language in this is just unbelievable, how all of this ties together. Um, it's remarkable stuff. And if you do all that, you will have a really good start for our study through Matthew 24 and 25. Now, here's the point and the perspective I'm going to be preaching and teaching from here. All right, ready? This is not about the church. Matthew 24 and 25 is not about the church. It's just not. And if you think it is, you've got a lot of difficult passages to work through. All right, let me give you an example. Look at Matthew 24, verse 13. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Mm, I don't know how that fits with grace, right? Like, is that how this works? Like, if you persevere, if you do enough works, then you go to heaven? No, says the church, all right? So if we think this is a verse applying to the church and salvation, we got problems, major problems. This passage is not about the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. It's not saying if you don't endure faithfully to the end, you go to hell. All right, now we could talk about what perseverance looks like. We could look at James. It's a whole different conversation. That's not the point Matthew's making in verse 13 here. He's talking simply about the one who makes it to the end of the tribulation will not be cut off. They will not be uh, taken, right? So in the flood, we'll get to this later. I'm getting ahead of myself. But when it comes to the flood, is being taken in the flood a good thing or a bad thing? Bad, you're dead, right? Like you don't want to be taken in the flood. The same thing when Christ returns in his second coming. You don't want to be taken. You want to be left behind at that point, all right? Because the ones taken, as you, if you read Revelation 19, they're taken in judgment. The sword comes from his mouth and slays all those who oppose him. Now, where was I? 
This passage is not about the church. It's talking about those who make it to the end of the tribulation and are thus literally, their lives are saved and they go into the millennial kingdom. So, these two chapters, they're not about the church. They're not even about the rapture of the church. Bless people's hearts, but it's not about that. It's not about that. These, these chapters here are simply about the Jewish people and God's promise to fulfill the full 70 weeks. The last week that remains on God's sovereign Jewish calendar for dealing with the people of Israel. Okay, that's what it's about. All right, so with that being the context, Jesus is telling them in verses four through eight, what are and are not signs of his second coming. That's what, that's what it's about, okay? And so what he's saying is one of them is, without a doubt, not the destruction of Jerusalem that occurred in 70 AD, okay? And this, think of it. This is 30 AD. The Jewish people, they're following the Messiah. They see him, they're going to see him slain on the cross and resurrected, and then time's going to go by, and they're going to see Jerusalem just destroyed, and they're going to remember the Old Testament prophecies, right? Where somebody's going to come and oppose Israel. And they're going to start to think, Messiah's coming. He's right around the corner. And Jesus is like, no, that's not a sign of my second coming. Okay? It's just not. It's not a sign that Christ's return is moment away. And we know that because not only does Christ tell us that, not only does the Bible tell us that, we got 2,000 years of history here where since the, the temple was destroyed roughly, and we're still waiting on Christ's return. See what I'm saying? Like, It's not a sign of Christ's return. Neither then is anyone who claims, also, and this goes to our second point, who claims to be Christ, for they are antichrists. All right? And that's the next thing Jesus tells them that is not a sign, people claiming to be him. Look at verse three. And he sat on the Mount of Olives and his disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age. Boy, we got to move fast. And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. Why? For many will come in my name saying, hey, I'm the Christ. And they will lead many astray. In our day, there are many people who claim to be the Christ when they are clearly not. There has been, and in the tribulation, there will be a lot of them, even more so than we face even now. For example, the World Mission Society Uh, It's a World Mission Society Church of God. They claim that Christ has returned and is the leader of their movement. They have a whole lot of followers. There's a guy in Mexico, another guy in Siberia, who all claim to be Christ. In fact, in China, there's a female Jesus who claims to be a Christ in the Church of the Almighty God, and she's not the Christ, right? And while this is true of the church age, it's going to be amped up and intensified greatly during the tribulation. And what does Jesus say about all this? He says, don't believe it. Do not believe it. Don't be duped. There's one theologian I really appreciate, and he explains it with a really good illustration. He says, if somebody comes and knocks on your door and they say, hey, you know what? You got to come out here. Oh, what? Why? A nuclear bomb just went off in your front yard. Do you even need to go and look? First off, you'd be dead. But let's say you're not dead, all right? Let's, don't, don't dig too deeply into the illustration. It's going to fall apart at some point. But let's say you're not dead. You don't need to go look. Why? Because the devastation of a nuclear bomb going off, you're going to know. You're going to know. All right? You don't even need to look. It's completely obvious. And so too, to Jesus's point here, and what we know is going to happen when he returns, it's going to be so obvious when Christ returns, there will not be a shadow of doubt whatsoever. 
whatsoever. For when he does, and we'll get to this in the coming weeks, we should just keep going. How about, um, it'll be so dramatic, so powerful, it will make a nuclear bomb look like a soft breeze from your fan. That's how intense Christ's return is going to be. They're going to be crying out when, when Christ comes and, and asking to like, trying to hide in the rocks. It's just going to be terrifying, terrifying. Let's just jump ahead. We'll read these verses. Look at verse 29 verse through 31 in Matthew 24. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, okay, this is, this is Christ's return, okay? The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the earth will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. They're not taken out of earth there, are they? They're gathered to Christ on earth, okay? They're not taken away in judgment. The people of God, the elect, are taken to him. But when this happens, this is going to be so remarkable, there will not be an ounce of doubt, even for unbelievers, when Christ return. It will not be a secret thing. It will not be a quiet thing like it was with his first coming. Christ is coming, church, and if someone comes along telling you they are the Christ, you can ignore them. And you should ignore them because when Christ comes at the end of the tribulation, you will not have to be told that he has come. And so anyone claiming otherwise is not a sign of his return. And not only is it not a sign, but also this moves to our third false sign. Neither is global disaster. Look at verse six. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginnings of birth pains. I wish I had another 30 minutes to expand on this, but I don't. Here's the thing, though. We'll say this quickly. Everything that occurs outside of the tribulation is not a sign of Christ's return. Did you get that? It's not a sign of his return. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's his point. Look at verse six. Don't be alarmed when you see hear of wars and rumors of wars, famines, pestilence, as, as Luke says in his gospel. They're not signs. The end is not yet. Now, I'm sure a lot of you have heard many well-meaning preachers tell you otherwise. They'll tell you how uh, the, the wars and rumors of wars, okay, that's not, that's not a sign, but the nations against nations, that's a sign. World War I, World War II, right? Like, that doesn't fit with Jesus' point, though. His entire point here is saying these are not signs, all right? And so whether it's World War I, World War II, the return of Israel to the land has nothing to do with Christ's second coming. Let me ask you, could, Christ, could God, if he wanted in his sovereignty and his power, return Israel to the land overnight? Absolutely he could. And he may still use what he has sovereignly brought about with what happened back after World War II, but that's not a contingent factor upon his return. God's gonna do what he wants. Do you realize that there's more Jews in New York than there are in Israel? Like they still have not come back to the land. They're not, they're spread out still. Some have, but the majority have not. Now, 
a lot of people will say Israel's return to the land has, is, is basically what verse 34 is talking about here um, with how the generation will not pass away. And they'll say, oh, well, here's how this works. So once Israel was returned to the nation, you know, that generation will not pass away until Christ returns. And so that means, I mean, we do the math here. We got like less than 10 years left roughly. So you better be ready, you know. Don't worry about those house payments, right? Like it ain't going to matter, that kind of a thing. That's not Jesus' point. Maybe he'll come back in the next 10 years, and hopefully he does, but that's not his point here. The point Jesus is making in verse 34 about this generation that will not pass away, it's the generation that sees the beginning of the tribulation. All these things will come to fruition before its end. That's his point. Remember, Matthew 24 and 25, it's not about the church. It's about Israel and God's returning to fulfill his promises made to them. That generation will see the 70th week and they will see the culmination of it, which is Christ's return. And that generation, though a lot of them will pass away, three-fourths of the earth is killed in the seven-year tribulation, roughly, but that generation will not pass away. Which means then that anything happens outside of the 70th week. We're in a gap right now. 69 weeks have been done. 70th week is to come. We are in the gap called the church age. This means then anything that happens outside of that 70th week is not a sign of Christ's imminent return. That's literally what Jesus is saying in this text. All right. So destruction of Jerusalem, not a sign. Wars and rumors of wars, not a sign. Nations rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom, not a sign. Famines, earthquakes, and as Luke mentions, diseases, COVID, all this stuff, not a sign. That's not the point of Matthew 24. And if you're going to argue otherwise, you got to look to other scripture, okay? So don't be led astray, Jesus says, for as verse six says, they must take place, but the end is not yet. And as verse eight says, all these things are the beginning of birth pangs. So put your earthquake counter app away. You can just delete it. You don't need it. It doesn't matter if earthquakes are increasing, okay? That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Let's stop looking at every war that happens in the Middle East as a sign that Christ is coming back in five minutes. Hopefully he is. Pray that he is. But the point here is that these are not signs of Christ's second coming. His words, not mine. It's right here in the text. The church is not Israel. Israel is not the church. And remember, Matthew 24 and 25 are about Israel. They're about Daniel's 70th week, which has not begun. And when it begins, that's when the labor pains start, right? That's what Jesus is talking about here. The events that Jesus is describing here about the wars, famines, earthquakes, and diseases are the labor pains that start at the beginning of the tribulation. For in that time, they will begin to ramp up slowly, just like birth pangs do, and eventually lead to terrible and excruciating pain of the full tribulation where God's wrath is poured out upon the earth in an unspeakably terrifying way. But at the end of that, at the end of that labor, Christ will return and the new age of the kingdom of God on earth will be birthed for all those who have been born again. That's the teaching of this text. I want to end here with Luke's account, where he gives us a warning and a hope. Here's what he says. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, 
and the anxieties of life, and that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Then verse 36, be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen, that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Praise God, church, that by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we are not appointed unto wrath. We're not. Thessalonians tells us we are not appointed unto wrath. We are, as Paul says in those books, we are children of the day, not of the night who engage in the sins just described there by Luke. And so because we are children of the day, we must and should and will stand firmly on the gospel of Jesus while warning all to flee from the wrath to come, which is only possible by seeking shelter in Christ. And so let us pray together. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. Father, we know there are many opinions out there on the prophecies of your second coming. And so, Father, we ask that we would, as we approach these texts, that we would check our biases at the door, that we would recognize that what we grew up with may not necessarily be accurate. So help us to look to your word and your word alone, not the newspaper, but to your word for the promises you have given us. Father, we thank you for your love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This time we're going to ask our ushers to come as they distribute the elements for the Lord's Supper.